Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Cardio Nerds family. Welcome back to this phenomenal Cardio Obstetrics Cruise. As a reminder, the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series is led by co-chairs Dr. Natalie Stokes, Cardio Nerds Ambassador from UPMC, and Dr. Sonia Shah, Cardio Nerds Ambassador from UT Southwestern, and produced in collaboration with Women Heart. Today, we will learn all about the fourth trimester in terms of postpartum and long-term cardiovascular care after hypertensive disorders of pregnancy with Dr. Malamo Contoris and Dr. Elise Helsberg. With this episode release, we will have aired 15 episodes featuring 35 outstanding fellows, faculty, and Women Heart champions tackling a comprehensive cardio obstetrics curriculum in a deep dive cardio nerd style. We at Cardio Nerds could not be more inspired by all of these master educators, passionate clinicians, and effective and impactful patient advocates. Remember everyone, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here are not meant to be used for medical advice. If you enjoy the show, please be a nerd and spread the word. Tell your friends, share online, and rate us on your preferred podcast app. And now, let's get nerdy. Hi everyone, this is Natalie Stokes, one of the FIT co-chairs for the Cardio Obstetrics series. We're thrilled for today's topic, the fourth trimester, which will be focused on the postpartum and long-term cardiovascular management of women with adverse pregnancy outcomes. We're excited to have Dr. Priya Franey with us today to help lead us through the topic. As a brief introduction, Priya is interested in preventative cardiology for women. She grew up in Kentucky, attended Duke for college, Ohio State for medical school, and the University of Chicago for a residency, and now she's a third-year fellow at Northwestern University. She's recent past chief fellow for her program and an ACC Merck Fellowship awardee this year for her work surrounding APO-related cardiovascular disease. Welcome, Priya. Thanks so much for the introduction, Natalie. I'm thrilled to be here today and excited to get into this discussion. For this episode, we're honored to have two faculty discussants with us today, Dr. Malamo Contouris and Dr. Elise Hausberg. Dr. Contouris is a clinical instructor and T32 postdoctoral scholar at UPMC Heart and Vascular Institute. She's primarily based at McGee Women's Heart Center and specializes in women's heart disease and cardioobstetrics. Her research is focused on pregnancy complications and links with later life CVD. Dr. Hausberg is an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, where she practices in maternal fetal medicine. She's currently a K-12 scholar in building interdisciplinary research careers in women's health program, funded by the NIH and Office of Research on Women's Health. Her research interests focus on mechanisms leading to cardiovascular disease after preeclampsia and development of remote and innovative postpartum interventions to improve long-term maternal cardiovascular health. Importantly, Dr. Hausberg and Dr. Contouris founded a multidisciplinary postpartum hypertension clinic, the Bridges Clinic. So a warm welcome to Dr. Contouris and Hausberg, and thank you both so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to talk about this important topic. Yes, thank you. It's really such a pleasure to talk about something that's near and dear to both of our hearts and I think really vital in the care of women. Really fantastic job putting this together. Dr. Hasberg, Dr. Contouris, thank you so much for both joining us together today. You know, the fact that you're both here with us really highlights the model for having a cardio-obstetrics heart team. So really excited to get into this discussion from two very important perspectives. But before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about how you both became interested in cardio-obstetrics? Sure, absolutely. Well, for me, I would say that my interest started in medical school where I was actually primarily interested in disparities. And at that point, it was disparities in outcomes for lower socioeconomic patients. And when I started internal medicine residency, I was a part of the women's health track at the University of Pittsburgh. And my mentors encouraged me to think about sort of disparities among women, specifically with regard to cardiovascular disease, because I was at that point interested in cardiology. And so I was very lucky to be put in contact with one of my primary mentors now, Dr. Janet Kadov. And through her, became very interested in adverse pregnancy outcomes 
and and sort of the disparity in treatment of women who are at risk for cardiovascular disease and the lack of knowledge really in this area in terms of research strategies that we can use to improve care for these women. That in combination with now sort of us knowing in the United States that maternal mortality is a major problem, and especially because the United States is way behind other developed countries in this arena, I think it has sort of further strengthened my interest in this space. There's a lot for us to do. I completely echo everything that Dr. Contoris said. I think for me, sort of my interest in cardioobstetrics, I obviously come at things through a different lens. So I did my residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And as I was going through my residency, you know, pregnancy is a time that women are actually really quite engaged with the healthcare system. We have a lot of safety nets to ensure, which we'll talk about a little later in, in our discussion, but we have a lot of safety nets to ensure that women have access to care during pregnancy. But what happens after pregnancy and after delivery is, in our country, I think quite abysmal. And as an obstetrician, while I was doing my residency training, I found that I was sort of counseling women about their risks that had come up either during, during their pregnancy or during their postpartum period and trying to help get them established with longer-term care and finding that, number one, there's just really limited evidence in this area. And number two, some of our traditional approaches to caring for women in the postpartum period just aren't realistic. Like saying to women, come into the office, bring your three-day-old baby with you to get your blood pressure checked when women have to take you know, multiple buses to come in for care or there's a snowstorm outside. And so that really started to get me interested in thinking about how we can not just improve the care that we deliver from sort of a policy standpoint of ensuring that women have access to care, but also thinking about how we deliver care. So I did my fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. And when I started my fellowship, became very interested in continuing to think about these questions and in particular think about them related to hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And I was privileged to participate in our American Heart Association strategically funded research network where I was a fellow within the research network, which gave me a lot of exposure to not just obstetricians and maternal fetal medicine physicians studying this, but also cardiologists and really smart people like all of you guys who can think about taking care of women beyond just the period of pregnancy and, and birth. Great. Thank you both so much for taking us through why you're interested in cardioobstetrics. And I think so much of what you both just said really highlights what the gaps in care are for these women and how we can all make progress in this field. So to help our listeners understand the specific expertise of our two faculty discussants, I wanted to first highlight the multidisciplinary clinic that you've started, taking care of women with a history of preeclampsia. So could you both tell us a little more about your collaboration at the University of Pittsburgh, both from a clinical and research perspective? Perhaps, Dr. Contouris, we can start with you. Absolutely. So I was very fortunate to come in contact with Dr. Hausberg when we were both fellows, actually. So I was a cardiology fellow, and Dr. Hausberg at the time was a maternal fetal medicine fellow. And we have one mutual mentor who I think clued us in to kind of our mutual common goals in both the clinical and the research spaces. And Dr. Hausberg and I had this vision of creating a postpartum hypertension clinic. And I think we were both thinking about it because we had heard of similar models across the country and actually internationally. There's a clinic in Canada called the Mother's Clinic that actually has a, a blueprint for creating some of these postpartum cardiovascular care clinics. And so we met and decided to develop a clinic together where we could specifically care for women who had hypertensive disorders of pregnancy in the postpartum period. And so this took some logistical legwork because it's a true multidisciplinary clinic where the patients see both maternal fetal medicine and cardiology essentially at the same time, back to back. And talking about where to house this clinic, and we ultimately decided to house it in our women's heart center at the McGee Women's Hospital. And we wanted to make sure that we were focusing on making it as feasible as possible for the patient to be able to come. So making it very easy for patients to access our clinic, to hear about our clinic, to be able to attend their postpartum visits. In the era of COVID, a lot of visits are happening virtually, and this has been a major advantage for women in the postpartum period. As Dr. Hausberg was saying, it is extremely difficult for women in the postpartum time period to get to the hospital, to come in for actual physical in-person visits. 
And having the ability to have virtual visits sort of accelerated by COVID-19 pandemic has made a big difference in our show rates for our clinic and has made it much more accessible for women who want to basically stay home with their babies, if at all possible. The other piece of us doing this kind of clinic was making sure that it was affordable for patients. And so getting some subsidies for patients for transportation if they need it and also for co-pays. So that gives kind of, I think, a, a general overview of the clinical aspect of things. And I'll kind of hand it over to Dr. Hausberg if she has more to add from the clinical side, but also then to build on the research piece of it as well. Yeah. And I would say when I think about the collaborations that I have with Dr. Contoris, I think virtually every project that I work on, she and I work on together because we've developed now such a productive collaboration. And we think about things from different angles, right? Like our training is very, very different, even though we may have the same sort of mutual interest in how we want to advance care for our patients. And so in terms of, I think Dr. Contoris did a wonderful job summarizing our clinic. I would say that the one piece that I would add is that in thinking about developing these clinics in other places, they very much are dependent on the population, the institution. We designed this, as Dr. Contour said, after the mother's clinic with the intention of bringing women in. Essentially, we called our clinic the Bridges Clinic to sort of bridge care from the obstetrician back to care out in the community. And so the goal initially was to see women around three to six months postpartum in a period where, you know, they've sort of finished or sort of graduated from their care with an obstetrician, but, you know, maybe either don't have a PCP or haven't actually followed up with their PCP because of all the kind of life events that have happened. And what we actually found when we started the clinic was that there was a huge unmet need for treatment of really complicated hypertension in the more immediate postpartum period. And that was not something that we necessarily expected, but our clinic has essentially now become sort of a catch-all for not just women a little bit later on to talk about future risk, but also to make sure that we're sort of more aggressively and effectively managing hypertension in the more immediate postpartum period. And all of those pieces are things that we have particular research interests in. So we've developed research protocols to be able to start to create a registry of all the women that we see in the clinic. We have created a home blood pressure monitoring program for women through the first year postpartum, which obviously will serve both a clinical need, but also answer some important research questions about normalization of blood pressure in this period. And then still fairly early in our career, and I'm on a career development award, Malamo just submitted her K. And I like to think of her as sort of a peer mentor, because while we may be at the same level of training, she has a lot more expertise in the cardiology space. And then I obviously have the expertise in the obstetric space. Wonderful. Thanks so much for giving us that overview. So personally, as a fellow who gets to train here and has watched what an effective and amazing clinic you guys have put together, it's particularly inspiring, especially given how early in your career you are and how much change you've created in a short time. And I know for a lot of people listening to the podcast who are thinking about this as a career, I think it's actually really inspirational to take that time to fill that unmet need in such a short and effective period of time. So thanks for sharing. All right, so let's get into the topic of postpartum cardiovascular care for women who have had APOs or adverse pregnancy outcomes, particularly hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. I'd like to tackle this by talking about a few cases, so we'll dive right into our first case now. We have a 33-year-old woman who's pregnant with her first child, diagnosed at 30 weeks gestation with preeclampsia. She's managed on an outpatient antihypertensive regimen and admitted for induction at 37 weeks gestation. She gives birth via vaginal delivery to a healthy baby boy. 24 hours postpartum, her blood pressure remains elevated at 165 over 110. So, Dr. Hausberg, in this immediate postpartum period, what are some of the complications of preeclampsia and management considerations you are taking into account when you're seeing this woman? I think the first thing that would jump out at me in a case like this is that blood pressure of 165 over 110. So in pregnancy and in the postpartum period, when we see severe hypertension, so in OB, we define that as being higher than a systolic of 160 or a diastolic of 110. We treat that as an absolute true emergency. 
Um, and part of the reason for that, as opposed to in a non-obstetric population, is that the cerebrovascular circulation is much more sensitive to hypertension related to some of the hormonal changes that happen in pregnancy. And so there is a much higher risk of things like stroke and seizure associated with severe hypertension in the immediate postpartum period or during pregnancy. And so when I see a blood pressure like that, first of all, going to want to go evaluate the patient, but also immediately treat that severe hypertension. And we would treat that with a rapid acting agent, either IV or sort of a rapid acting oral agent to try to get that blood pressure down. And the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, recommends treating severe hypertension within 30 to 60 minutes because of all those risks that we talked about. That is kind of one of the mainstays of treatment is making sure we're really aggressively managing that severe hypertension. The other thing that I think about is the risk of seizure. And so in women that have hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, even after delivery are still at risk for having eclampsia. And so for a woman that has severe hypertension, I would want to be thinking about initiation of magnesium, which we use to help prevent seizure during pregnancy and in the postpartum period. So those are sort of the two mainstays. There are a lot of other pretty serious sequelae that can develop related to preeclampsia. Women can get things like fluid overload and pulmonary edema. They can have what we call HELP syndrome, where they can have abnormalities in liver function tests, as well as significant thrombocytopenia. They can have renal failure related to preeclampsia. And so I'd want to be assessing for all of those developments as well with some lab work. So certainly we know that the effects of having had preeclampsia don't end with labor and delivery. And we know that uh, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy are associated with hospitalizations for heart failure exacerbations. Dr. Contouris, how do you approach screening women for heart failure who have had a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy? And I'm thinking to the incredible work you did with looking at LV remodeling over time through sort of these gradations of hypertensive disorders. Yes. You know, this is such an interesting question. And I'll say that volume overload or sort of symptoms of heart failure are pretty common among preeclamptic patients, especially those who have severe preeclampsia. And we may not see them when we diagnose preeclampsia. The tricky piece is that they may actually develop some of that more pronounced volume overload or heart failure in the days or even one to two weeks after their initial sort of preeclampsia diagnosis admission. And so there is a risk to develop heart failure. And really, I think every woman with preeclampsia should at least be screened from a clinical standpoint. So asked about symptoms, asked about lower extremity edema, specifically shortness of breath, orthopnea, PND, the things that we're used to asking our heart failure patients about, we should be screening probably every preeclamptic women, at least by clinical history. The other piece is though, you know, it warrants if they screen positive by questioning, getting a BNP to look for evidence of cardiac stretch, essentially. And we see elevated BNP levels also fairly commonly, especially if women have symptoms of heart failure. That may be an indication to give a diuretic, and that can help accelerate sort of the recovery in the postpartum period, certainly help their symptoms. But there was actually a, a randomized controlled trial that was just published in hypertension that looked at furosemide administration for women with preeclampsia postpartum. And among non-severe preeclamptic patients, it did seem to improve blood pressure. The other thing that's important to consider is a, a transthoracic echocardiogram. And there are multiple reasons for that. One is that preeclampsia is actually a risk factor for peripartum cardiomyopathy. And so if patients have signs or symptoms of heart failure, you want to consider that they could have a reduction in their ejection fraction. And of course, would want to evaluate that with a transthoracic echocardiogram. We have also seen evidence of diastolic dysfunction in these women, both by echo criteria, meeting actual criteria for diastolic dysfunction, or having evidence of elevated filling pressures, both on the left and the right side. There's numerous articles that have looked at echocardiographic findings in women in the sort of immediate postpartum period, and even some now, as you mentioned, um, looking further, years even postpartum, where we see some changes. And those changes can include thickening of the left ventricle, evidence of left ventricular remodeling, the typical things that we see with diastolic dysfunction, a decreased E to A ratio, decreased E prime, and increased estimated PA systolic pressure. So in summary, just you know, a pretty low threshold to give diuretics if you think your patients may need them and to get a transthoracic echocardiogram to evaluate. Fantastic. 
thank you both for taking us through that really nice discussion on sort of clinical care and management of these patients in the immediate postpartum period. So back to our case, luckily, over the next 72 hours with blood pressure management, our patient does well. Her blood pressure has improved significantly, and she's discharged on day four after her delivery without any antihypertensive agents with her healthy son. And so I've had many patients who ask whether they're in the clear now. Now that their blood pressure is back to normal range, should she be reassured? And would you continue to monitor her? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think historically, how we used to counsel patients actually in obstetrics was that when you have preeclampsia, the treatment for it and the cure for it is delivery. And so until really very, very recently, that's kind of what we were telling patients and not actually sort of doing a great job educating them about not only the longer term sequelae of having a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, but also what can happen in the immediate postpartum period. And what we know is that actually for women with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, there can actually be an exacerbation of hypertension that happens in usually between days five and 10 postpartum. And that exacerbation of hypertension can have really significant consequences. So all of those complications that we talked about earlier, things like seizure, stroke, heart failure, the difference being that for the most part, these women are at home, and they may not be monitoring their blood pressures at home. And so the recommendations from ACOG is that women that have a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy have their blood pressure measured at least once between days three and 10 postpartum. And traditionally, this had always been done with in-office assessments, which, as you can imagine, really, really challenging for postpartum women who have a three-day-old to come into the office and have their blood pressure measured. And so, you know, when we look at attendance rates at these visits, we see that they're somewhere in the 40 to 60% range. So really just not, not good. And so essentially what happens with the traditional model of care then is that women are being discharged from the hospital. And essentially, if they're not monitoring blood pressures at home, they're not having their blood pressure measured or being seen in this period. And so what we were finding is that there's quite high rates of severe hypertension of women being readmitted to the hospital and significant morbidities like strokes. Our program at the University of Pittsburgh has been a really big proponent of the use of home blood pressure monitoring in this period as an innovative way of actually ensuring that we continue to monitor and manage these women in the immediate postpartum period. And we have a clinical program that we've developed that at our institution where women are monitored through the first six weeks postpartum with home blood pressure monitoring. Thanks for going through that. The importance of monitoring, and you've highlighted a few of the challenges that occur for these women often, leads us right into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, can you tell us a little bit more broadly how you think about postpartum follow-up for this patient that was just discharged and for patients with hypertensive disorders in general? So which patients should have routine follow-up with their obstetrician or primary care versus who should be seen in a cardiology or a combined OB cardiology clinic? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think to some degree that may vary institution to institution and depending on what some of the key stakeholders are at, at various institutions and what the resources are. But I think in general, you know, as I mentioned, there, you know, it's critical that we have at least a single blood pressure measurement, if not more than that, in the first week or so postpartum. Ideally, we're sending women home with a home blood pressure cuff so they could be monitoring their blood pressures at home. And in terms of who is actually managing that blood pressure, you know, I think, again, it's going to vary institution to institution. But I think, you know, in general, it is typically the obstetrician that is doing it. If it's not the obstetrician, if it's a primary care physician, or if women are being cared for through a combined OB cardiology clinic, one of the barriers when it's not an OB managing their blood pressure is that women think that they're potentially being prescribed medications that might not be safe for breastfeeding. And so I want to make sure that we bring that up. I think that's really important that as a cardiologist, if you're going to be prescribing for women, obviously you're going to be cognizant that you're prescribing something that's safe, but also being really clear about communicating that with the patient, because I think they don't always think to ask. At what point do you transition antihypertensive management from the obstetrician to the cardiologist? And is there anything that you do as part of that transition to make sure it goes smoothly? Typically, that will go through six weeks that an OB will be managing hypertension. And then usually at most places, what happens is that care gets handed off either to a primary care physician or in places that do have a combined OB cardiology program, women are sometimes referred into a program like that. 
Okay, so you talked a little bit about medication management and transitioning from obstetrics to cardiology. Can you talk a little bit about any challenges that you've experienced or that may occur that need to be addressed as part of that transition? Yeah, I think there's quite a few challenges, actually. And and I think one of the kind of biggest challenges is the fact that that handoff doesn't always happen, right? And that's why some of these multidisciplinary clinics have become so needed and to care for this population because women finish their care with their obstetrician and they may not actually have a primary care physician. They may not understand the importance of follow-up. So I think having that handoff happen is sort of one of the biggest challenges that we see. And, and that's definitely exacerbated by some of the policy level issues within the United States. And so for women who are pregnant, they are guaranteed health care, at least through the first 60 days postpartum through Medicaid coverage. And historically, it varies state to state, but historically that coverage ends, as I said, at 60 days. So actually, excitingly, the passage of the big COVID stimulus package included within that is actually this American Rescue Plan Act that has this landmark policy now to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage up to a year postpartum. So within the bill, it actually allows for, for states to determine whether they want to adopt that, but it at least gives the option of doing that, which is hugely important in this patient population and is very exciting, I think, moving forward in how we think about caring for women after pregnancy. Yeah, Dr. Hosberg, thanks for bringing that up. And I didn't realize that this recent bill helped bridge that a little bit, right? We know that there is so much inequity in the care of women with cardiovascular disease. And the sequelae, the consequences extend far beyond the initial few weeks. So I'm so glad that they extended the coverage. But I really think the onus is now on states to adopt it and help extend these benefits universally throughout the country. So this is, um, I think that part is still Uh, yet to be seen. But speaking of the postpartum period and transitions of care, Dr. Contouris, what are the key things you address at these initial postpartum visits as they potentially transfer care from the obstetrician's clinic to the cardiologist clinic or, you know, during in a comprehensive cardio B clinic? And I want to bring back what you said earlier about, one, the need to follow up these patients very closely because there are so many sequelae, often which potentially go unnoticed, but then also balancing that with how challenging it can be to physically come to clinic and have follow-up, something that I'm acutely aware of as a two-fellow household with four-month-old twins. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how to balance all the needs altogether. Yeah, such a good question. So, you know, I think first it's important to think about who might best qualify for needing sort of multidisciplinary postpartum care. And we think about like who are the highest risk patients in the postpartum period. In particular for our clinic, we really try to focus on women who have ongoing issues with high blood pressure, who are still needing to be on antihypertensive meds, particularly if they're on more than one. Those who maybe had pre-existing chronic hypertension might be more likely to have uncontrolled blood pressures in the postpartum period. Also those who had severe preeclampsia, those who had severe elevations in their blood pressure, certainly anyone who had heart failure symptoms or who needed furosemide treatment and or who had pulmonary edema, and patients who have other sort of cardiovascular risk factors. So oftentimes, patients who have a history of diabetes are at increased risk for a hypertensive disorder or pregnancy. So those sort of patients that have combination risk factors who may be higher risk, not just in the postpartum period, but for cardiovascular disease in the future, those are the ones we really want to target to see in our clinics. When they come for a postpartum visit, then there are a couple things that we focus on. And this is a true, for us, it's a true multidisciplinary clinic, meaning that the patients get to see both maternal fetal medicine provider and a cardiologist. And we really try to be complementary to each other, focusing on sort of separate but equally important issues in the postpartum period. And sort of first and foremost, a lot of these women have very traumatic ends of their pregnancies and deliveries. And so it's important to really allow them a space to kind of debrief. And that role is usually filled by one of our maternal fetal medicine providers. And then in addition, other sort of obstetric related issues like contraception and counseling on future pregnancies can kind of happen in the OB space. From sort of the cardiology space, we want to make sure that we address patient symptoms. If they have sort of any ongoing symptoms of high blood pressure or heart failure symptoms, certainly those need to be addressed. And then we kind of talk about other risk factors. Want to ask about past medical history, family history, 
tobacco use, sort of the typical things that we do in a preventive visit as a cardiologist. And then also talk about blood pressure management. So this is kind of a hallmark of what we do in the clinic. Certainly managing blood pressure with medications and making sure that their pressures are adequately controlled. But then a lot of these women, because they're young, want to get off medications if at all possible. So talking about other strategies to reduce high blood pressure, lifestyle modifications. And then the final piece is really to talk about the future, prevention and screening for risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And then in thinking about the future, a lot of these women, as uh, Malamo alluded to, had very traumatic ends of their pregnancy. And for a lot of women, they do want to have another pregnancy. And so this is often a space that we use to be able to talk about, to do kind of what we would consider like a preconception visit, where we actually will talk about, you know, what are the risks in a future pregnancy? How would we try to mitigate some of those risks? And what are things that they can do in the interconception period to actually try to, to reduce some of their risks and improve outcomes for a future pregnancy? Great, thanks. So we've mentioned many times throughout the series that APOs are associated with long-term cardiovascular risk. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about what we know about this long-term risk and what the long-term cardiovascular implications of preeclampsia are? Definitely. Yeah, we have multiple meta-analyses at this point that have shown us that pregnancy complications are independent risk factors for cardiovascular disease in later life. More specifically, we worry about ischemic heart disease. There's an increased risk for heart failure, for stroke, for venous thromboembolism. And this is kind of on par actually with having dyslipidemia. It's, you know, about double the risk for women that have had specifically preeclampsia or hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. Beyond sort of actually developing clinical cardiovascular disease, women with a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy are at four times the risk to develop hypertension. And we're talking just in the five to 10 years postpartum. We're not talking about postmenopause. You know, oftentimes these women are still in their 30s, maybe early 40s. So really young women who are at increased risk. Thinking even more specifically about the types of preeclampsia and what that means, those who have severe or preterm preeclampsia carry an even greater risk for these cardiovascular complications later life. And, you know, there are a number of studies now that have shown about 40% of women with severe preeclampsia can still have elevated blood pressures at just one year postpartum. The more interesting question to me is sort of why are these women at increased risk? And that this is something that, you know, I think a number of us on this podcast are interested in investigating because we don't really know for sure why. Ramit had mentioned, you know, our recent paper looking at echocardiographic findings in women 10 years postpartum. And we found that those with preeclampsia in combination with hypertension have the highest risk of left ventricular remodeling just at 10 years. And that can have, you know, major implications for risk of heart failure, for risk of ischemic heart disease. You know, we don't quite know exactly why these women are at increased risk, but we're beginning to see that it's something partially structural with the heart and also that these women are at increased risk for traditional cardiovascular risk factors, really then highlighting the importance of us managing this in the postpartum period. Yeah, Dr. Contreras, I think that is one of the most fascinating questions about this whole space, right? Is preeclampsia or these other hypertensive disorders, are they a marker of preexisting risk or are they a driver of risk or some combination of the two? It's, it's just, it's fascinating. But regardless, the this immediate postpartum time, even for the first few weeks and months afterwards, the time after having a kid is so stressful as it is, right? The body is changing. You're not sleeping. You're trying to deal with this extremely demanding little human who, you know, doesn't even smile at you for the first three months. It's it's challenging. It's stressful. How do you add on to that baggage, right? Like, how do you discuss these issues of long-term risk and what kind of follow-up they should have after the birthing process? And especially with sensitivity to you know, these women are young, potentially previously healthy. You know, they don't oftentimes, they may not think of themselves as having risk or having disease or having illness. So how do you approach that conversation with them? Yeah, that's a really great question and a really nice summary. I have a six month old, so it's a very nice summary of what the like first first three months of having a baby are like. So I think to your point, for a lot of these women, this is their first experience as being a patient, right? Or as being, you know, not having being a hundred percent healthy, right? That suddenly they're being told that they were having previously a completely normal pregnancy. And at some point in the pregnancy, for a lot of the women that we see, it's in the late second or early third trimester that they're very sick and that the only way that we're going to be able to 
help them is by actually delivering them. And so for a lot of women, this is really their first experience in that sick role, right? And seeing themselves not as 100% healthy. And I think there's certainly a mentality among particularly maybe prior generations of obstetricians that like adding this stress of saying, hey, there's this long-term risk onto this might just be too much for women to handle. I mean, frankly, I think that's a little bit paternalistic, right? To say we don't, we shouldn't tell women about this or we shouldn't counsel them. Obviously, thinking about the appropriate context is really important. And that's part of why, you know, we sort of picked this three to six month window for when we see women in our multidisciplinary clinic, because we feel like, you know, you are officially outside of the fourth trimester at three months. And so, and you're a little bit hopefully outside some of the sleep deprivation and all of the other stressors that go along with the immediate postpartum period. So I think opening the discussion at the time of delivery is something that I've tried to do. And thinking about the context, it may not be at the immediate time that the woman is diagnosed saying to them, oh, you're at a higher risk of having heart failure and this, and stroke and chronic hypertension. But, you know, perhaps when things have settled down a little bit and prior to them leaving the hospital, starting to have this discussion about why it's important to continue to monitor their blood pressure, why it's important to follow up so that if this is the only interaction that they have with the healthcare system, which is hopefully not the case, that they will at least come out of it with some of that knowledge and and understand the importance of longer term follow up. Excellent. So we've talked now about the care and management in the initial postpartum period after a pregnancy complication. Now, I'd like to shift to discussing the long game and talk about CBD prevention strategies in the decades following pregnancy complications. So let's shift to another case. I saw a patient in clinic who was a 47-year-old woman. She came into the cardiology clinic referred by her primary care physician for a cardiovascular risk assessment. She has a history of three pregnancies, two of which were complicated by preeclampsia. And she hasn't been seen by a physician in over a decade because she's been healthy to her knowledge and only recently established with this PCP for a wellness visit. At the time of the visit, her blood pressure is 132 over 85, heart rate 77, BMI is 29, and the exam's otherwise unremarkable. So Dr. Contouris, at this point when you see her in your clinic, how do you approach globally assessing her long-term cardiovascular disease risk? Yeah, so this is going to be similar to the prevention visits that we have as cardiologists with all of our women. And my recommendations would really be the same for any woman, which is that you sort of assess both sex-specific cardiovascular risk factors and traditional cardiovascular risk factors. And the traditional ones we're all familiar with, and that's still important for this woman. But I'll also talk a little bit more about kind of the sex-specific risk factors. In particular, you want to ask about obstetric history. That should be a hallmark in our prevention visits for every woman. You want to ask also about menopause history and when they underwent menopause and assessing sort of what age they were when they went through menopause. And I think it's also important, this woman is 47, so she may still be premenopausal and may be on birth control. You want to assess too what birth control methods these women are using. Thanks, Dr. Contouris. I just have to give a shout out to our fellows from UPMC, Natalie, Agnes, and Kaylee. It was their case when they brought this patient to CardioNerds with uh, severe preeclampsia. It was the first time I learned about asking about a thorough OB history. And I always make it a point to ask that for my patients now. And whenever I do, I think back to that case and our friends from UPMC. So I'm glad we're highlighting that now. Yeah. Ahmed and Dr. Contouris, you both have brought up the obstetric history, and who would have thought that at this point in our careers, we'd still be discussing tips on how to take a good history. But this portion in particular is actually a new skill for many cardiologists. So can you give our listeners just some tips on perhaps a cardiologist's guide on how to take an OB history? Yeah, absolutely. This is a little bit tricky because you're asking a patient to recall what may have happened some 10 or 15 years ago. But there are actually studies that show that recall of preeclampsia in prior pregnancies is actually pretty good with a specificity of greater than 90%. The sensitivity is low, but if someone tells you that they had preeclampsia, it's likely that they did. So how do we go about kind of assessing for not just preeclampsia, but maybe other adverse pregnancy outcomes that increase risk for cardiovascular disease. How I kind of frame it for me is first I start with asking every woman how many pregnancies they've had. That will get you at if they've had miscarriages and also kind of their number of live births. The OBs talk about this in frame of gravida and para. I think for the cardiologists, 
that piece is not really so important. You don't have to label it, but you want to make sure that you don't miss something. So asking number of pregnancies will get you sort of an overview of how many they've had. And then I secondly ask, what were the outcomes of those pregnancies? So did they end in abortion or miscarriage or was it a live birth? Thirdly, I ask about delivery method. So C-section or vaginal. And if they had C-section, then you probe a little bit more. Why? Because a lot of times it's related to maternal issues. Sometimes it's fetal issues and then you're sort of done. But that can give you a clue in, okay, maybe this wasn't a totally normal pregnancy and something here happened. The fourth thing I ask is if they know gestational age, meaning how many weeks they were when they delivered, that's important. But really the question is, were they at term or not? So you want to know Did they deliver before 36 weeks of gestation? And women can recall that pretty accurately. They usually remember if they delivered their babies early because it was unexpected. And then the fifth piece is complications. So again, you want to kind of probe here because if you say generally, did you have any issues with your pregnancies? They may or may not give you sort of the the detailed answer that you're looking for. So I will maybe start broadly with a, a question there. Did you have a complication in one of the pregnancies? And then I will still dive it a little bit deeper. I'll ask more specifically, did you have diabetes during your pregnancy? Did you have hypertension during your pregnancy? Did anybody tell you you had something called preeclampsia or toxemia? Um, especially if you're seeing older women, that is what preeclampsia was labeled in the 1980s and, and, and even the 1990s. And then again, if they delivered a preterm, if that didn't come up already. So that's kind of the framework of how I go through it. And usually that'll get you what you need without missing anything. Dr. Hasberg, how uh, how did you feel about that cardiologist guide to taking an OB? <laughs> it was excellent. I mean, I've trained Malamo well, apparently. <laughs> no, I, the only piece I was going to add is that I think also asking a lot of women, even if they don't remember the gestational age at which their baby was delivered, they will often remember their baby's birth weight. And so that can sometimes also clue you into, you know, a baby that is particularly small, right, is either particularly small because the baby came early or the baby had growth issues, which, you know, for fetal growth restriction is one of the, you know, key adverse pregnancy outcomes that we know is associated with increased cardiovascular risk. And so that piece of information can often be very helpful as well. Thank you both for going over this. So clearly a history of adverse pregnancy outcomes are risk factors for atherosclerotic disease and should modify our approach to risk stratification and our preventive strategies uh, in these patients. But as young women, oftentimes the pooled cohort equations won't identify them as having increased risk in and of themselves. So how often do you incorporate or is there a role for incorporating the CAC score, current calcium score to help modify your approach to risk stratification in these patients? Dr. Contouris. Yeah, you know, clearly there's a need for more information about how we risk stratify women who are under age 40. We, in general, I think underestimate risk for women who have had pregnancy complications because we don't yet know how to incorporate that into risk models for young women. Once you reach age 40, preeclampsia and preterm birth are sort of risk enhancers. So if you think about the 2018 HA lipid guidelines, that will get you sort of a plus one sometimes in the algorithm and and may guide you in in management. For women who are under age 40, then we're a little bit stuck, but I still sort of try to go through the AHA lipid guidelines. I think that's still a good framework, but keeping in mind, if you think you're underestimating someone's risk, a coronary artery calcium score can be a good way to help risk stratify them it's still going to be that the majority of women who are in that younger age range are going to have normal coronary artery calcium scores. But if they don't, then that really does help guide you in indications for starting a statin. That's really helpful, you know, talking about when to get a CAC score in these women and how to approach figuring out really what their risk is above and beyond the pooled cohort equation. So, I'm going to move on to the next case. Dr. Hausberg, this next question is for you. So you see a 39-year-old woman in clinic who gave birth to her third child about a year ago, and she's decided she's done having children, and she comes to you asking about her best contraceptive option. Her second and third pregnancies were complicated by gestational hypertension and preeclampsia, respectively, and led to deliveries at 34 and 33 weeks. She now has chronic hypertension, which is well-controlled on hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily. For the last 20 years of her life, aside from the years surrounding her pregnancies, she's used a combined estrogen-progesterone oral contraceptive pill for her contraceptive method, and she wonders if she can go back on that. How do you advise her regarding the best options for contraception, especially taking into account her cardiovascular disease risk? 
Yeah, that's a great question that comes up a lot when we care for these women. So combined oral contraceptive pills contain both an estrogen component and a progesterone component. And in particular, we worry about the estrogen component being associated with with exacerbation of hypertension or increasing blood pressure. For anyone that is interested and wants to do a deeper dive in thinking about appropriate contraceptive options for women with specific medical conditions, which I know is not something that comes up that frequently for the cardiologist, but there's a really nice app from the CDC that goes through medical eligibility criteria guidelines where you can actually select a specific medical condition and then look at the various types of contraception and what the recommendation would be about level of risk for using them. So I think in general, you know, for any medication that we think about, but in particular for contraception, you always have to think about what is the risk of not using it, right? So for a woman who you're going to say, you can't take this medication and then not give them any option for contraception, pregnancy may actually be much riskier, right, than than taking an oral contraceptive pill. But specifically for this patient who has, you know, a history of hypertensive disorders and multiple pregnancies and has ongoing hypertension controlled on medication, a combined oral contraceptive pill is probably not the best option for her. And in particular, if she is done with her childbearing, it may be worthwhile talking to her about, you know, more permanent options for contraception. So things like a sterilization procedure, if she wanted to avoid surgery, there are some really nice long acting reversible contraceptive methods that are as effective as having a sterilization procedure. So things like an intrauterine device, which is a progesterone only method. We also have a copper intrauterine device that contains no hormones, which I think, you know, For some women, they just feel more comfortable not having exposure to any hormones. And so I probably would counsel her that starting back on her combined oral contraceptive pill would not be the best option for her and try to counsel her about her interest in any other kind of method of contraception that doesn't contain estrogen. And along those lines, Dr. Contoris, how would you counsel a peri or postmenopausal woman who's interested in hormonal therapy if she has a history of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy? Yeah, so this is kind of highlighting what I had said previously about the importance of also asking about menopause history when you talk to women in your cardiology clinics. The typical guidelines is that hormone therapy is okay for women if they're within sort of 10 years of menopause. We don't have specific data to say that hormone therapy would be dangerous, in particular for women who have hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Generally, if you're having a lot of vasomotor symptoms related to menopause and you're wanting to start hormone therapy, especially if you're within a year or a few years of reaching kind of that menopause transition, I think it's probably okay. If you're beyond sort of 10 years from menopause, then I would avoid it for sure. All right. Thanks for going through your approach to hormone therapy and menopausal women. I think the story for hormone therapy over the years has really evolved. So it's helpful to hear that contemporary approach. We are at our last case. So we have a 32-year-old woman who comes to the office to discuss pregnancy planning in the setting of a complicated prior pregnancy. Her first pregnancy, which occurred two years ago, was complicated by preeclampsia and preterm delivery at 32 weeks when she was induced for escalating and difficult to control blood pressures. She'd like to have another child. So Dr. Hausberg, how do you advise her when she comes to our clinic about this? Yeah, so this is a great case to talk about the really the importance of preconception care and thinking about how we can optimize health prior to pregnancy. So I think most importantly in thinking about her getting pregnant again would be whether her blood pressure has normalized after her preeclampsia and early delivery, whether she's still requiring antihypertensive medications, or if her blood pressure has gone back to what it was pre-pregnancy. And then thinking about other sort of general kind of preconception considerations. So things like optimizing her diet and exercise, making sure that she has a healthy BMI coming into pregnancy. All of these things have been shown to reduce the risk of recurrent disease in women who have a history of preeclampsia. I would also recommend to her, given her history, that she take uh, low-dose aspirin during pregnancy. We have many randomized control trials and several meta-analyses now that have shown that low-dose aspirin during pregnancy in women that have risk factors for preeclampsia reduces the risk of development of hypertensive disorders by somewhere between probably 15 and 20%. So it's certainly not a magic bullet, and that's kind of how I counsel my patients, is that unfortunately, this is what we have as a preventative option. There's certainly ongoing work looking at other options for prevention, but none of those so far have really kind of played out to be as effective as aspirin. 
So Dr. Contouris, from a cardiologist perspective, anything else you'd want to emphasize for this patient as she's discussing the possibility of getting pregnant again? I agree 100% with everything that Elise said. The only other thing that I will say is sort of counseling women that they need to have very good blood pressure monitoring during subsequent pregnancies, especially after they reach 20 weeks gestation. So making sure that they have a home blood pressure cuff, that they're able to do that monitoring and counseling again on signs or symptoms of preeclampsia to look out for in the subsequent pregnancy. I'm curious, is there a role for co-management for this patient preconception and if she becomes pregnant again? How do you coordinate care for these high-risk pregnancy patients? So I think the role of co-management preconception would be specifically thinking about if she had ongoing hypertension or other risk factors that needed to be managed from a cardiology perspective preconception. If her blood pressure has normalized, I don't know that she would necessarily need to see a cardiologist preconception. I think that a lot of this counseling can be done from either an obstetrician or a maternal fetal medicine physician. But I think when she does become pregnant, in particular, if she were to, you know, develop recurrent preeclampsia, if she had in the interim of between pregnancies developed chronic hypertension that we were, you know, needing to manage her blood pressures during pregnancy, then at our institution, we do see these patients separately. There are at various institutions, there are multidisciplinary clinics for pregnancy care. This discussion about co-management and collaboration sort of fits right in with what we've seen in each of our cases. And as the field of cardioobstetrics is growing, this importance of collaboration between obstetrician gynecologists and cardiologists is so important. So can you each give us a few pearls on interdisciplinary care management and any words of wisdom you can provide from your experience to our listeners? Yeah, so I think, you know, the most important thing in thinking about multidisciplinary care is communication, right? So making sure that you have open lines of communication. At our institution, we have a monthly meeting where we discuss any pregnant patients who have cardiac issues that is attended by all of our maternal fetal medicine physicians, as well as our cardiologists who specifically care for these women. And these are not sort of a one-time discussion. So we know that, you know, for specific, we didn't talk a lot about underlying cardiac disease in women and caring for them during pregnancy, but we know that these that risk profiles change through pregnancy, right? So a woman that comes into pregnancy and we think is, you know, relatively low risk and is going to do well can develop complications as the pregnancy progresses and puts progressive stress on the, the cardiovascular system. And so these are ongoing discussions that we start at the you know, initiation of prenatal care and every month talk about these patients. And so I think establishing a forum where this communication can be open and can happen, you know, ideally in person, although in COVID times, you know, we now do it remotely, (laughs) is really critical to caring for these patients, you know, whether it's just a monthly meeting or whether it's actually seeing these patients in clinic together, I think is probably not as important as the fact that like that communication is happening. And then I think recognizing um, each other's expertise and having a a relationship that's built on respect and trust, right? So, you know, I'm not going to go and say that a patient that has, you know, a cardiomyopathy with an EF of 20%, I'm not going to make any recommendations about her cardiac medication management in pregnancy. What I'm going to bring to the table is my expertise about safety to the fetus, you know, the physiologic changes that happen to the cardiovascular system during pregnancy, but I'm going to rely very heavily on my cardiology colleagues to help me to, you know, counsel that patient and to make those types of decisions. Perfect. Very good pieces of advice. So respect, trust, and communication. I think those are some solid foundations. Dr. Contouris, anything from you, pearls or words of wisdom? I had written down some of the exact things. I think in meeting with some regularity to make sure that you continue to sort of be on the same page about recommendations for patients and that knowing that things can change both peripartum and postpartum. And some other, I would say, sort of pearls or, or kind of words of wisdom, you know, silos are never good. This is a space where you really want to have open communications. You want to be truly collaborative, taking, you know, into consideration the expertise of multiple disciplines, OB, anesthesia, cardiology, and sometimes even other members of the team that you really want to be open to hearing everybody's opinions and, and kind of advice. My other pearl is find your Elise. You know, find someone in 
the respective kind of departments for me in cardiology, finding someone in maternal fetal medicine in the obstetrics world who could be a true partner in starting multidisciplinary collaborations like our postpartum hypertension clinic is key. You need that buy-in from the multiple disciplines because it's really hard to do it alone. I love that. Find your Elise. (laughs) Or your Malamo. That's great. So Dr. Katoris, Dr. Hausberg, this has been a fantastic discussion. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you both, what makes your heart flutter about cardioobstetrics? Dr. Katoris? Yes, I was so jazzed for the podcast today. And I think it's really about the opportunity to improve cardiovascular care for women, in particular, at such a vulnerable time in the postpartum period. I I think giving that space for patients to know that they can have somewhere to go to help with their blood pressure, to help with prevention and cardiovascular risk factor discussions, I, I think is so valuable. Perfect. And then Dr. Hasberg, what makes your heart flutter about cardiobstetrics? I think the fact that there is cardioobstetrics, right? Like, that's amazing. I mean, I think one of the really funny things about being an obstetrician, particularly being MFM, like, as soon as a woman is pregnant, no other specialists want to touch her because they want it. They're like, you have to check with your obstetrician. You have to be cared for by an obstetrician. And I think the fact that there's like this whole niche of cardiologists that actually want to engage with pregnancy in the postpartum period is so exciting. And I think really gives us the opportunity to, as Malamo said, to actually start to improve care for women during pregnancy um, and during postpartum. So I'm as jazzed as Malamo to be here for the podcast, but also kind of equally jazzed that cardioobstetrics is, is so popular within cardiology. So thanks. So thank you so much, Dr. Kintoris, Dr. Hausberg, for your time, for your insight. Although I get to work with you, I am still blown away by how much I learn from you every time I hear you speak. And I know our listeners are going to get so much out of this and on such an important topic. Priya, thank you for putting together such great cases, help guide us through this discussion. It is such a neat experience because I'm here with such an inspiring group of women who will definitely be moving this field forward. <laughs> Priya, you did such a, such a great oh, job yeah, with you, it. Right? It was a team effort. I mean, all I did was write some stuff. You guys filled in all the meat of it. So this was awesome. Thank you both. Yeah, this was great. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilize what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research. 
much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series, raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardia OB series.